Hello, and welcome back to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, media, and technology in Asia. I'm your host, Carol, and this is our last episode of 2020. And what a year it has been. But as per Analyze Asia traditions, we've invited our longtime friend, Shai Oster, the Asia Bureau Chief of the Information, to come on to the show to do our annual year-end rundown with us. First of all, welcome back, Shai. Hi, thanks for having me back. The last time we spoke, it was pretty much a year ago. And well, who would have thought that 2020 would turn out like this? A global pandemic was definitely not on anyone's predictions. So since your last appearance on the show, what have you been up to? Uh, running away from disease. Um, <laughs> we made it to New York just before the wave hit there and then made it back to Hong Kong. And we've been hunkered down here, keeping busy chasing headlines ever since. We all look like dental hygienists here in Hong Kong with our masks, learning to live a different way, washing our hands so much that they crack and turn bloody. But, you know, looking forward to uh, getting vaccinated sometime in the next year. Uh, one thing I got to say for Hong Kong's government is they seem to have been on top of securing supplies for everyone. So touch wood or fake wood-like product that I'm sitting next to. I hope that 2021 is a little brighter. I got to say though, you know, it was interesting is that despite the absolute bleep bleep of last year, uh, censoring myself, it was interesting to learn how to work remotely. I'm sure everyone went through that experience of like how to juggle trying to stay in touch with your fellow co-workers while trying not to murder your family members at the same time. These were interesting challenges. But I think in some ways, you know, we all learned that the, we don't necessarily need to be in an office and learned a lot about how the future is definitely going to be changed by the way we, in, in so many of aspects of our lives. That's right. We are recording our episode remotely right now, but we've been doing that for a while now. So we're a bit of ahead of the game. Now, First, before we start talking about what has happened in 2020, do you still remember what kind of predictions you made at the end of the year in 2019 about 2020? You know, I didn't. My brain, I have such short-term memory loss that my head, but luckily you guys gave me a bit of a heads up <laughs> and I was surprised that I, you know, some of my predictions seem to have been kind of okay. Of course, no one, you know, as you said, no one predicted global pandemic that will <laughs> and if you did predict the global pandemic i don't think you would have said yeah and china will win america will just fall on its face but uh, what's interesting is that china did have you know i've talked about china's economy and it has in fact been an incredibly challenging year for china but also one that really showed a surprising resilience and underlying resilience in the chinese economy i would not have guessed that it would recover as quickly and as robustly as it has to be frank but yes i was right on the China's economy. And then I also thought that TikTok would retreat from the US, which it still is in the US, to be frank. So they, you know, it's, that's a directionally right. Uh, although how it played out isn't quite the way I would have thought. And but there's definitely a, a renewed focus on China within ByteDance and its other products like uh, Lark, the big push into e-commerce. I said they'd be making a bigger push into India, would not have predicted that India is dead to them. Although unlike Alibaba, ByteDance Dance hasn't fired people. So I think I think they're still playing a long game in India. In Africa, I haven't really seen much of any action there. I think uh, Africa is a different is a challenging market, although you know there, there are plenty of like tech entrepreneurs doing well there, but I don't think as far as I know, ByteDance is one of them. The shift of money to other markets, yes and no. In the beginning, I think in the first half of the year, that was some sentiment in that direction. And then quickly what happened is that, well, it's diversifying. I think it's maybe not as concentrated in China, but definitely, you know, what you're seeing is that like, for example, uh, the company C, the gaming and e-commerce company out of Southeast Asia, that's now nearly a hundred billion dollar company, formerly Garena. That's shown that Southeast Asia is a really compelling market, right? Like you, you, go, like you, you can see now that there's an exit, there's a viable exit. You may not be able to IPO at a hundred billion dollars, but you got a buyer. And so definitely we're seeing flows of money towards Southeast Asia and the incredible action with geo and reliance industries raising billions of dollars for its big push has shown also that there is real money to be made in India. 
that said, we've also seen record new funds being raised in China. Now, there's a concentration of, you know, it's not like it was a couple of years ago where anybody could raise a $100 million fund just by hanging out a shingle. But Jack Ma, Yun Fund has raised a couple billion. Who else? China Renaissance is raising combined $2.5 billion equivalent uh, split into a US dollar fund and a renminbi fund. Their biggest, Qi Ming, is again raising. GGV is raising an enormous fund. So uh, how would I score myself on that one? I guess 60%? I don't know. You tell me. What do you think? I think you definitely pass if, if, <laughs> if we were to grade your predictions from 2019. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. I mean, no one could have. I think you received a really good score given that it has been an extremely challenging paper, you know, for the year 2020 because of this curveball of uh, the the pandemic. And you talked about um, U.S.-China tension as well, about how, you know, there likely is going to be some kind of trade war, which I think is kind of we're going through. Yeah, we're, you know, going through that right now and exacerbated by the pandemic and everything. So... Yeah, I think you did pretty well. It's like my college organic chemistry. You know, <laughs> luckily I was graded on a curve, so I didn't fail. <laughs> now let's cover some of the events that happened this year. So 2020 events that shook China and SoftBank. So we mentioned the China-US tensions, which will have exacerbated and percolated to other regions as well. You mentioned, you know, India, as our listeners probably know, India banned uh, about 47 apps, including more now, including, you know, WeChat, TikToks, and, and many of these Chinese apps, and then also Australia and the US banned WeChat. So let's go to India first. Given that the major unicorns are invested by Chinese tech giants, for example, Paytm has investments from Alibaba, and then there are the rise of you know local giants such as Reliance Jewel, as you talked about, which is backed by a strong U.S. consortium like Facebook, Google, Silver Lake, etc. What do you think some of the challenges are uh, moving ahead for Chinese companies like Xiaomi, which is dominant uh, in India? Sure. No, that's actually, it's interesting. So Alibaba is toast in, in India. We actually wrote a story, uh, my, my colleague Juro Asawa did a deep dive into Alibaba's problems. And it turns out that Alibaba was kind of stumbling even before there was that deadly skirmish, border skirmish between Chinese and, and Indian troops that triggered the ban. So Alibaba was already kind of not doing such a great job, but it tried several times to strike alliances with these very powerful Indian tycoons, including Reliance. So it struck out with Reliance. It came, it actually had a deal with Tata, but then days later that the chairman that they struck the deal with was ousted in a boardroom coup. So that fell apart. And then they tried with a few others. And all these people that they tried to strike deals with ended up becoming tech giants in their own right. India, while compared to China, it's a poor market, right? It does not have the per capita income. And China now has an enormous, not only e-commerce, but also the advertising industry, right? Like, remember Alibaba, I think about half of its revenue is from advertising. So it's a very rich market. Whereas if you look at India, India's total advertising market is about as big as all of Southeast Asia, a couple mm -hmm. billion. It's nothing. But everybody looks to India and says, oh, okay, this looks like China 20 years ago. Young population, rising incomes, and everyone's betting that 10 years from now, it'll pay a dividend. So that's why people are willing to make these long bets. But Alibaba has just retreated. So, But that was from even before the political poop storm hit, they were already stumbling. Tencent, interestingly, is still playing its game. It's still making these... Its investing strategy is less like a strategic investor such as Alibaba and more like a financial investor. So it takes substantial but minority stakes in, I think, Swiggy. Uh, who's it back? At the top of my head, I can't remember. But there still there and haven't because i mean yes wechat's banned but so what right wechat is not an international app it's a domestic app PUBG became a problem so that matters but still in terms of the, and their presence as an investor they're still there they're still on haven't had the same blowback companies that have been decimated would be somebody doing like a like a straight cross-border e-commerce play like a club factory they're just, they're, they're banned and they're dead in the water. Now, what's up with a company like Xiaomi? So Xiaomi, despite their marketing, is a hardware company. Their software ecosystem, I think, exists kind of in China, but it doesn't really translate anywhere. On the rest of the world, they're a really good spec, cheap Android phone. And I think 
you know, it's interestingly interesting to note is they haven't been hit yet. And I don't think they will be because it doesn't pose the same threat. I think also they're subject to the same requirements that Apple and others are in terms of local production. So that means that you have, you already have like boots on the ground, factories, people who are going to lobby on your behalf. There's Indian workers that you're employing. Mm -hmm. And so just kind of like how Apple in China employs directly like a million plus, you know, you can't kick out Apple because that's a lot of unemployed Chinese. The same thing, I think (laughs) Xiaomi now has such a presence. You can't kick out Xiaomi because not only is it production there, but there's a whole least favorite word, but I'll use it ecosystem of uh, the retailers, the supply chain. Like there's a lot of people who are making money off of Xiaomi other than Xiaomi being employed by this company. So I think they're safe. And effectively, in terms of like, I have not seen accusations of like secret back doors, They haven't had the same blowback globally that Huawei has. They've been pretty good so far. And I think that their position as a dominant player, it's also, you know, it's Xiaomi and Oppo and Vivo. They seem to be spared, will maintain that uh, lower profile. I think also their most visible faces in, as I recall, Xiaomi has a lot of very high profile Indian executives. So they've been smart about localization, which Alibaba wasn't very good at. So I think they're going to be okay. You know, at the end of the day, like Reliance, a company like Reliance needs a company like Xiaomi. Xiaomi, actually. Reliance is a telco operator, right? It needs people, it needs phones that are good and cheap. It needs phones that will let people have the specs to watch video, but are cheap enough that like not just the 5 million people in Mumbai can afford it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a, a lot of reason for, and India as a country has a lot of reason to endorse affordable good hardware, right? It kind of it benefits everybody, anybody from like a businessman looking at a stock price to farmers who are able to hedge the cost of their cotton, right? So as long as these companies are careful and not hitting third rail of politics, they can serve the interest of the local economy and uh, local policymakers, right? And sort of informization and economic development. So I think they don't pose the same threat. It's not like there was a big player, as far as I know, though, that I think there are some Indian companies, but I don't think they, they just didn't seem to gain the same traction. Since you mentioned, you know, Apple and China being uh, in similar shoes, do you think that China will come down hard on US companies that are heavily invested here, like Apple or, you know, Starbucks? You know, these companies get dinged all the time. You know, Starbucks had its brouhaha a couple of years back with its the Starbucks in um, the Forbidden City, which I think has now become like, is it a luck in coffee now? Uh, probably. <laughs> Apple gets dinged every once in a while. Like they had to change their warranty policy because it was sort of anti-China at one point. But I think, you know, Apple lost market share in China, not because of anti-US sentiment, but because the Huawei phones were just really good, right? Like, it, you know, Apple used to be like like the Mercedes, right? It has a luxury status symbol, right? But then Huawei, you know, became just a really, really high-end phone. So they lost market share, not because of the politics, but because of the changing consumer taste. I think more broadly speaking, when I was in China a decade ago, the shtick was that, oh... Chinese can make products, but they don't know how to do brands. Well, well, that's that's BS, right? Like the fact is that like Chinese are turns out to be there's not like a genetic thing for branding, right? Chinese are good at brands, right? Like if you look at and across the spectrum, consumer goods, there are like a lot of hot Chinese brands now, right? Uh, was it Popmart that just did the IPO? I mean, this is like a gazillion dollar company that sells tchotchkes, little whatever, like LOL doll. I don't doll. get it. <laughs> Right. But like it's that's pure branding, right? That's right. That is pure branding. And it turns out that like the Chinese are good at branding. So Huawei also did a decent job at branding, as did Vivo and Oppo, right? Again, like that's a company like I remember when Bubble Gao was selling its uh, VCD players and and the marketing was Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) And now like, you know, so he learned, right? So they'll be dinged for like, oh, you don't do this the right way. But at the end of the day, like Apple brings in So what Apple has done is enormously beneficial for China because it has trained, it didn't tap into a pre-existing supply chain. It trained a supply chain. It trained thousands of engineers. It trained thousands of highly skilled workers. And these engineers and workers didn't just, you know, they spread out throughout. And and like, so the same supply chain that makes an Apple also makes a Xiaomi. Without Apple helping foster that supply chain, you wouldn't have a Xiaomi or a Vivo or, you know, whatever other brands are are out there. I think that there's a recognition that 
having apples still in China is beneficial. Again, it's it's aligned to the interests of China. Their market share as a product is so small that it's not really a threat. They employ, imagine if what would happen to Kunshan if you shut down the Pegatron's factory there. You'd have a problem, right? Like you mm-hmm. would have, you know, even though Pegatron is a Taiwanese factory, the workers are all... Chinese. Uh, yeah. And so, and it's like, tens of thousands. These are massive operations, right? Like maybe Beijing wouldn't care, but Kunshan would lobby really hard to keep to like, you can't shut us down, right? Because it would be like a devastating blow to not only Kunshan, but to Shanghai, because it's not just employees, it's the entire supply chain that's coming, you know, it's, it's hundreds of factories that contribute to these facilities. So I think, you know, they'll continue if they need to, they'll do like the CCTV investigative report and like, you know, ding them. But they can't do more than that, mm. given how important they are to domestic policy goals. Understood and agree. And you mentioned supply chain. So, you know how currently the Chinese government has directed uh, Chinese companies to be more self-reliant and specifically in the semiconductor industry. Do you think that we're going to be seeing the decoupling of the supply chain accelerate uh, much quicker? You know, that's a tough one. So the government's efforts so far to direct creation of a new semiconductor industry has been uh, a disaster. They have poured so much money into failures, right? I believe, you know, these companies just, which one defaulted recently? It's a history of defaults and shutdowns. We actually wrote about a JV with Qualcomm and one of the local governments, and it just kind of quietly was shut down until we wrote about it. Governments are not very, and this isn't a Chinese thing, but like the track record of state spending on picking winning tech mm-hmm. is not a good one. It's not, it's not just a Chinese thing. It's, it's just true in general. It's very hard to, for government bureaucrats to pick winning tech. You know, their exceptions would be the, the DARPA and some of the stuff that's happening in, in Israel. I am deeply skeptical of uh, SMIC's ability to suddenly catch up to Taiwan Semiconductor. And it's interesting, we're not talking about American companies, we're talking about a Taiwanese company, right? Just, mm-hmm. just so it's not a, it's not a, the West, right? We're, we're, you know, the, it's hard to make a fab to do these super thin technologies. Now, where you might see something happen, what governments are good at is weirdly fostering cutting edge research. So like if you say, if a government says like, okay, we're going to give grants to anybody doing quantum computing, then you can motivate, right? Somehow that seems to work. And so maybe the next, you know, the future generations, right? China might come out ahead, but for some reason, getting a company to profitably make that technology is just really hard. I would have thought that it would be an, uh, a no-brainer, but these companies just repeatedly have failed. So I am deeply skeptical of decoupling. I also think there is, this is one of my, it's a theme I keep going back to, is that one of the unusual aspects of the China-US relationship is how intertwined they are in terms of capital and intellect. I didn't think about it at the time, but when I when I did my, my pre-med at Columbia a million years ago, the guys who were my TAs in chemistry were all Chinese. And chances are they probably end up either being professors or working in the U.S., right? So these were mainlands who are now contributing to the intellectual property buildup of the U.S. I mean, if you go and vice versa, you know, there's no Alibaba, there's no Tencent without Wall Street. That's right. All the, and then you go to particularly like semiconductors is less, is more of a patent driven industry, right? And so, but AI, for example, which is another sort of area of contention, it's mostly open source, uh, meaning that you produce the research, even for private companies, they'll have like their research teams and they'll just post it online. So AlphaGo does its algorithm, it posts it online. The team from Tencent will look at that and actually they've tweaked it and say, oh, we figured out how to improve it. Mm-hmm. They post that online, right? So it's very, because it comes, AI is born out of a, a pure research environment. So like these companies to lure the best talent, they kind of have to keep offering them. So professors are weird, right? They don't just want money. They also want recognition. <laughs> money and uh, fame. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in, in some cases they want the fame more than the money, right? Like, and so that's why these companies have all uh, maintained, they all publish frequently. So, I mean, semiconductors, as I said, it's different, right? It's really about like you, you make a patent and you make a ton of money off the patent. I know people talk about decoupling. 
I just don't see how it could happen. E- even then, like, so Huawei, you know, it's like, so it's they, like, even with all the stuff that's been going on, companies such as Intel and Qualcomm have gotten exceptions, special licenses. So it's like, yeah, yeah you can't sell to them. Except <laughs> under certain conditions where we, so, I mean, yes, effectively, like, I think what's killed Huawei's phone business wasn't necessarily the chips, but the software. Not having access to Google kills them overseas because okay. that's what people want. They want a cheap Android phone that has super high specs, right? Yep. And it wasn't the chips that killed them, but the software, in my opinion. I'm skeptical that we'll see decoupling. And if there is decoupling, well, what is it, where, where does, you know, the most important company for both sides is Taiwanese, right? So how, right, I mean, interestingly enough, they're building facilities now in the U.S., but I don't see them shutting down in Shanghai. So that's my wishy-washy take on it. All right, I like that kind of approach better as well. <laughs> I don't like it when I hear a very us versus them, us or them kind of rhetoric all the time. And, and like you said, I do think that U.S.-China are just so intertwined, you know, just from my personal experiences of how how, where people were educated, you know, how they work, where they work, where they got their ideas from, et cetera, how the industry works, et cetera. Yeah, I don't, I don't really see how it could just decouple like that. And, and you mentioned Tencent just now. So given that Tencent owns a few major gaming companies like Epic, and with the recent lawsuit between Apple and Epic, do you think that there is a possibility that the U.S. government might pressure Tencent to, uh, for example, divest their holdings in the U.S.? You know, if Trump had won a second term, maybe. I think Biden has other issues to worry about. I think there there are real issues with, I mean, China's a red herring. Russia's the big problem, right? Like when it comes to hacking, the Russians have done a number on the US. Like that's like, I don't know why people are like, oh my God, TikTok. Like what? <laughs> Stupid teen videos are not the problem. Okay. Like really, really guys, like let's, let's focus on like planet earth. Then that said, the Chinese have a Chinese authorities, not, you know, there are Chinese spies, I'm not saying all Chinese, but there, there is, there's a track record of, there's a history of spying and hacking as well. But I don't think, and, and I think that needs to be addressed, but that is like by and large, WeChat has issues on being pressured and being used in surveillance domestically. And WeChat has become a vehicle overseas for disseminating what what some would call propaganda, other would say the truth. But I don't think the games are an issue. I mean, Tencent. I don't think the Biden administration is going to be looking at the games. I think they're going to. There's still going to be definitely a focus on stopping and preventing the more overt hacks. And I think some of the stuff about like the influence of the mechanism of Chinese influence operations is still going to be closely watched. I mean, this is sort of a broader issue you see in Australia, right? That whole thing about like the United Front work. I mean, the Chinese, you know, these they, they know how to use, inf- this is like going back to like the revolutionary days of like tapping the elites and finding, you know, fellow travelers and all this stuff. So that, that stuff is real and that will, there will still be a focus on that, but I don't think a company such as, I don't think video games are going to be seen as, the battleground will those fight with those fights will be fought and that brings us to the last but the hardest question when it comes to u.s china tensions which is how do you think the biden administration will handle the current tension between u.s and china so as i said like a lot of the stuff that the trump administration did broadly speaking is i think the broad trend will continue because there's a feeling that of disillusionment on both, like I used to joke, the one thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on is that like things with China have to change, right? And Mm -hmm. because there's a a broad feeling, even among businessmen, and it's interesting, like some of the people who I knew who are still in China, who are among the most like, whose lives are the most vested in China, like this is like senior lawyers, senior businessmen are just like burnt out. They're like, like, you know, they, they're like, they feel as if like, it's enough, right? Mm-hmm. Enough with the like IP theft, enough with the, with the restrictions, enough, right? We've got to, we've got to do something to like, we have to stand up to this, right? The engagement or for lack of a, it doesn't always work. And sometimes you need to like, put a line in the sand and, you know, if you cross it, there are going to be consequences. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's definitely that a disillusionment with the effectiveness of previous policy. And that's frankly because what worked under Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin doesn't work under Xi Jinping. It's a different, 
it's a it's an entirely different administration and an entirely different outlook. You need to adjust accordingly. So I think the Biden administration will continue with that tougher line on China. Where I think they will differ is in how they execute this policy. As well, as I said, I think the China hacks will still be that. That's just like unacceptable from from the U.S. perspective, and that will be still a problem. I think the questions of access of like you know one of the most interesting, one of the most vulnerable points for China into the U.S. is is、uh, Wall Street, and the new regulations on foreign listed companies having to adhere to U.S. auditing standards. Well, that's law, and I don't think it's going to be rolled back. And that passed with bipartisan support. Democrats and Republicans agree on this, and frankly, I mean, I was kind of surprised that the Chinese got this carve out. It's kind of like, but you're, you know, welcome to America, but like, it's, it's like if you're going to drive on my road, well, we drive on the wait, left. Where am I living?、Uh, <laughs> we drive on the right side, and you know, red means stop, and green means go, and you know, right turn on red depending on the city. Why that kind of stuff? Like, where okay, these are the standards you need to adhere to them. And I think you know, with the Clinton administration getting China to join the WTO. Was seen as like okay, this will bring China up to our international standards, and it didn't quite work out that way, right? So I think there's probably my guess is there's going to be a lot more efforts to reengage the multilateral process to get China to adhere to things that it signed, such as WTO agreements, as opposed to sort of the unilateral approach that the Trump administration favored. I think that the Biden administration is going to tap into, you know, China's its worst, own worst enemy when it comes to diplomacy. It's just, it's shocking to me how often they just shoot themselves in their own foot. It's just like <sighs> I know what you, you mean. Know, wolf, <laughs> like wolf diplomacy, like you're a lone wolf, guys. Like you know, the wolf gets hunted, right? Like it's not a good idea to be a wolf. You know, like Southeast Asia should be like even Cambodia is like, well, we're not so sure. You know, like Malaysia, they lost Malaysia, they lost、uh, Myanmar. Like, come on, like Vietnam. Like, these are all like they should be your client states. Or in a you know bad choice of words, but like, there's not a lot of goodwill out there, which is surprising, right? Because it's you know how many countries, given the amount of okay, I won't go into the politics, but it is surprising, right? Like,、yeah. and so there's a lot of I think the Biden administration can. Tap back into that to rebuild regional alliances, which will be uncomfortable for China, but will allow less unilateral pressure. And I think once once you tap, I mean, like Australia, like they are just like it's great. Like so, I think that the shift is going to be in the strategy.、Um, I think they're going to be less wasting time on these these sideshows like TikTok, you know. And and it's also going to be less of a、um, you know the Trump administration. I, I always felt like it was like watching. An episode of of The Apprentice where it's like every night was like a cliffhanger. Who will be banned tomorrow? Stay tuned. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. You know, like I mean, every, every right. Trump is like, I might shut it down, but then again, I might not. Ha ha ha! You're like, now for a commercial break. With Biden, I think it's going to be much more like telegraphed well in advance. We're going to have a meeting. We're going to talk about it. These are the ten points. This is what you know what I mean. It's going to be boring, but it'll still be the same in that same direction. And I think less about particular, less of this theatrics. Still, I think Russia is probably the bigger priority in terms of hacking, in terms of China's commercial. But but Russia doesn't have anywhere of the near commercial or economic impact of China. But still, I think it's going to be it's a, it's it's going to be a challenging relationship. They also you know from the flip side, China is going to feel like does feel like why the hell should the U.S. be the one setting the international standards? It's just right like why like well we got there first okay well we're here too. You know, we want to see at the table, and we have different ways of approaching certain things. And I think some of the Chinese approaches are perfectly valid, and it has to be a broader. Has to they have to be included in, in these discussions on everything from like setting IP addresses to figuring out you know sovereignty issues over 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 the internet. It, it'll be the same themes, but in a, executed in a much more boring and predictable manner, which I'm so grateful for. It'll be a little bit easier to report on, maybe. The TikTok saga in particular was just ridiculous. You'd be like, <laughs> you'd be like, yeah, we got a deal. Next day, what?、Nope. No, we don't have a deal. Like,、oh, 
crying out loud. And you can just imagine like Zhang Yiming is like sitting there with like ulcer medication. Like I, what's going like his, his, you know, his government relations people are like, I don't know. I, I was like, like we went in the room, he said he had a deal and then he was on the plane and someone pointed out, you know what I mean? Like it was so erratic. I'm glad that you brought up TikTok because that is the, uh, our next segment that I wanted to address. So, you know, a lot happened of course in 2020, you know, there were talks about Microsoft acquiring the TikTok US entity completely, but the eventual decision was that Oracle gets to become an investor along with Walmart for TikTok US to ensure that data resides in the US. So what are your thoughts on TikTok's current situation in the US? You know, so right now the ban, they're operating normally, right? Because the, the courts have not upheld uh, any of the bans. And Cepheus, I think, is also kind of been delayed also by, by the courts. The Trump ban, I think, will fall apart, right? Because that one, the, the executive ban is the most, is the weakest one. The Cepheus order is more, probably has a better legal standing. And that is more about mitigations they would have to do in order to comply with, like you said, data security. I predict that TikTok is going to go ahead with the Oracle Walmart deal under the Biden administration. You know, so one of the problems with with the TikTok Oracle deal is that also it needs Beijing's approval, right? Because it's AI. So Beijing says you can't sell control of Chinese AI to a foreign entity. And so one of the funny things was watching the Oracle Walmart side publicly argue over the meaning of their deal with the TikTok side. So TikTok is saying, oh, no, no, however the deal structured, we still retain control over the tech. And when Trump was told, you know, He's like, Chinese can't control this. And so Oracle and Walmart say, no, 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 no. We control it because it's a consortium of like Oracle, Walmart and investors, which means that most of it, you know, the investors technically like even Sequoia China technically is a US and whatever. It's like my head is spinning. I assume that they're going to sort it out. So part of it, I'm sure will be tossed out by the courts, but I think a deal still makes sense for TikTok. I mean, Oracle won't give them the political cover under a Biden administration that it gave them in a Trump administration, right? Larry Ellison was tight with Trump. He's a big fundraiser. Don't imagine there's much love between Biden and Oracle, but they're still a big American company. But the Walmart aspect is really interesting because Walmart can teach TikTok or ByteDance a lot about commerce. And it's clear that commerce is the big battlefront in China and everywhere, right? I mean, ByteDance is killing it in advertising. But once they throw the lifeless husk of Baidu onto the side of the internet highway, <laughs> they're going to have to go, uh, Alibaba is going to go for them, right? And, and they know that. And so the best, you know, defense is offense. And they're already making moves into e-commerce, but e-commerce is hard. I think they want to learn from some, like, you know, Walmart is one of the world's most successful retailers. There's a lot of, and just as Walmart wants to learn from TikTok, like how to do social without a social graph the way TikTok does. So I think that that alliance still makes sense. And my guess is that's still going to happen. Even without that looming threat, I think the deal still makes a lot of sense for, the, for these three companies. Oracle maybe might reduce its stake is my guess, but I think Walmart and TikTok could be really interesting. It's also you know, just kind of like thinking out loud, you know, Walmart through Flipkart is big in India. And you could see maybe, okay, well, we can't go into India as a wholly owned company, but maybe we go in as a joint venture where, where Flipkart owns a majority or what goes into India would be the joint venture, the TikTok Walmart joint venture goes into India. And so you have the political cover, but you're still getting access to this, you know, the world's second biggest internet market. So I think a deal would still make a lot of sense for them. Hmm. That's a really good suggestion. Somebody needs to forward this episode to... Uh... Right. I'm, sure they're, I'm sure they're mapping it out. That's, that's true. Do you think ByteDance will still be able to grow a lot, given that there's so much pushback from all the other markets? If yes, where do you think these growth markets are? Or do you think they'll have to really just turn inward domestically? So, you know, as I said, there's other ways they can be inventive about how they go into market. The U.S. is an open question. India, they might be able to figure out some kind of joint venture back way into it. What's left? Latin America, they're definitely pushing into Latin America. Brazil is a, is a substantial market. It doesn't seem to be any kind of the same level of concern there. Middle East, not the same huge numbers, but sizable markets nonetheless, some rich targets. But I definitely think that much more of the energy will be focused on shoring up the domestic market, especially because Alibaba's trapped. You know, Alibaba failed in the US. Its attempts to build a global payments network or financial 
network was shot down. Ant Group is in deep trouble. I think Ant Group is going to be cut into pieces. If not, I mean, my, my feeling about payments in China, payments is national is infrastructure. It's going to be nationalized, right? They're going to be forced to sell it to Bank of China. Like that, you heard it here first. Like, there's no way. The thing is that the Chinese government understands that business is a vehicle for control. That's why the state-owned enterprises are not only important for like making stuff, but for controlling the country, right? That's why the heads of big SOEs have government ranks. And you cannot have a country where half your payments are controlled by some private company that wants to list what? Where? No. It's like, you know, some hedge fund's going to have any kind of say over how my country operates. It's like a highway. No, not going to happen. So given that Ant Group is in turmoil and has going to have to restructure, Alibaba, India gone, Southeast Asia, maybe something happening there. And we said, like, you know, sees growth into a $100 billion company shows that there is a lot of potential there. But I think the big target is going to be back home in China. And so ByteDance has to defend itself against Alibaba is this machine of just like growth that just keeps showing insane, insane growth numbers. And Ant, the anti-PO is going to be like record-breaking moment. And so I think they will have to focus on back home. You know, it's really interesting is group social commerce, the Shichu, what is it called? Uh, neighborhood group buying, I think is how they call it. So companies like Xinsheng Youxian or who else? I mean, basically everyone's moving into it. So in second, third tier cities now, there's this big push into basically online groceries, but done. It's like a mashup of Groupon and e-commerce for groceries, where you have like the neighborhood Xiaomaibu has now become a pickup station. So instead of doing the last mile delivery, you just go to the Xiaomaibu and pick up your eggs and, you know, cabbage. But the Xiaomaibu is also texting you saying, hey, we got a good discount on fresh, you know, uh, mushrooms. And so these companies have all become multi-billion dollar companies and Ali's moving into it and JD and Pinduoduo and Meituan and Didi. You know, they're all pushing for this next layer of commerce in China, which is groceries. It's a huge market. It's got miserable margins because we're talking about like by tie, right? <laughs> like how much money can you make off a of cabbage? Yeah. But if you're selling billions of, you know, billions of heads of cabbage, there's, it's just the volume of it is massive. And they're pushing into relatively untapped markets of like these much, much smaller cities and towns, you know, fourth or fifth tier. I don't even know what tiers they are. Places that make Shijiazhuang look like a modern megalopolis. So there's definitely untapped markets within China still, and people are going to be fighting for that. I think, and ByteDance has clearly shown this whole thing in China where you can't just be a vertical, you can't just do one thing, you have to become a platform, you have to do everything. Everything. (laughs) Because otherwise, if you're just one thing, you're going to be beaten by the platforms. I think, I don't know if this is some kind of Confucius or Lao Tzu principle of war, I I don't know. But like in the US, you could just be like, I'm Warby Parker, I sell glasses. And no one's like, oh, Google will destroy you. Like It does remind me of one line from Dao De Jing, and it says, Dao Sheng Yi, Yi Sheng Er, Er Sheng San, San Sheng Wan Wu. So from Dao, you have one, two, three, and everything. So if you already, you know, figure it out, the way to do business, and technically you can venture into like any industry. So ha, there's your loud okay, wisdom okay. for you. <laughs> no, but it's true, right? Like there's this always this thing. It's like, if we have traffic, if we have internet traffic, then we can do anything with this internet traffic, right? That's right. always like the big thing in China is to get the traffic. And then you say, okay, we have traffic. Let's sell cheese. Oh, okay. Yeah, or cabbage. Now, now, granted, now behind selling cabbage, it turns out that it's like cabbage is actually really hard to sell because groceries are fragile and you can't, they're hard to store. So behind this Xiaomaibu person sending a WeChat like, hey, government, Mingtian woman, you know, we're going to have a hot sale on, you know, carp. Let's say it's fish. So Chinese buy their fish alive, not frozen. So how the heck are you going to distribute fish in some fourth tier city that's going to be fresh enough to meet the exacting demands of some very angry eyes? So you need like actually turns out like very complicated algorithms to figure out like, okay, we got the fish coming into this distribution center. It needs to be sent out to these four places. Luckily, because we get the orders a day ahead of time, it gives us 24 hours to scramble like mad and run our machines and the machines figure out and then we send out like this massive distribution of trucks 
and the trucks go, instead of having to go to every door like Amazon or, you know, a fresh direct in the U.S., we only have to go to these neighborhood. And then the last mile, at least, is taken care of. Apparently, the margins are solid enough. That reminds me of one time I went to my aunt's place in, say, third tier city. And uh, she bought some shrimp. And they were delivered, like, live in a bag with water. I was in shock to find a bag of live shrimp hanging on the doorknob. Okay, so right. And that's because that's the way a Chinese consumer, like, I mean, I wish Americans to some extent, you know, but so selling groceries in China, they're not going to be like a tomato. It's hard to sell a tomato to deliver a tomato or an egg, right? Like delivering eggs, right? It's hard. We're not talking about like cans of pasta sauce. That's fine, whatever, right? A box of cereal, right? It can take a little beating. But when your your bag of live shrimp in water, that's not an easy thing. There's like cold storage and plus, you know, let alone the hygiene issues, right? Let's say your shrimp uh, got some dirty water. Your company could be crushed by like a food poisoning incident. So there actually is some, there's some tech in like this figuring out the logistics of it and making it the most efficient as possible. There's also just a lot of like old fashioned, well, not that old fashioned, but just sort of like nuts and bolts distribution. That's right. Well, I really want to talk more about Ant Financial, which you briefly touched on. First is the hardest question, which is, will Ant Financial eventually IPO, do you think? Yeah, sure. But what's it going to be? The Sunday breaking news was that uh, they got called in by regulators and were told to focus on payments. And they had to like follow the rules for credit collection and a few other pieces. Basically, they're being told, Stop messing around with the financial products. My guess is something is going to IPO. What it is is not going to be. What was their last private valuation was like 140 billion? They're going to IPO. Whatever IPOs is going to be a you know a fraction of that. I mean, they're lucky if they end up being something like a Visa or Mastercard. That's the best case scenario. Although even then, actually. MasterCard, and I take it back because MasterCard and VisaCard do offer, although I don't, I'm not quite clear who carries the risk on a MasterCard, if it's the underlying issuing bank or if it's MasterCard itself. So I, I should hold off on, on, on making the exact analogy. But it's clear that the payments business is what the government is saying you can do. The credit business, the, the business of, of lending out money and selling financial products it just doesn't work. And so some people are saying like, oh, this is all of a sudden. It's like actually for years, the government has sort of been trying to rein in Ant and Tencent's repay as well, right? A couple of years ago, they created a sort of intermediary company for payments to be routed through called Wang Lian. And this was a company, it was a weirdly structured company where it's owned by a consortium of state-owned banks and the tech companies. And so my guess is that looked like an ownership structure that would not, it looked like it was just going to be deadlocked, right? Gridlocked because there's so many conflicting interests as opposed Mm -hmm. to like just the state saying do this. But that was interesting about that is that it sort of took, you know, for a long time, any, any transaction that happened within the Alipay platform was a black box to the government. So they see money going from the bank into my Alipay account. What it does inside that Alipay universe, they have no idea whether I'm buying drugs or buying socks or a jetliner. All they see is when that money comes back out. The government set up this intermediary where like every transaction has to go through this third party where they could see what the money's going for. Mm-hmm. You know, given the size of Alibaba and Ant, they knew real time more about the state of the economy than anybody else in the country. Which is pretty right? scary. Right. I mean, like for better or worse, right? Like they could see, like Google can see the trends of my search habit, but it didn't have that. Imagine like Amazon and Google combined. Actually, I think Ant's presence is bigger than Amazon because Amazon doesn't do the payments as well. And and the Alipay stuff wasn't just for stuff that's being bought on Alibaba, remember? That's right. It's a big push into brick and mortar. So it really sees like every transaction. It had a view into the state of affairs in China that no one else had. How is that possible <laughs> to have that in private? Plus, it was in charge of your credit history, right? So it's got your FICO score. I mean, that's a huge amount of power. I have an excellent score on Alipay Jirma Credit, I think 723 or something like that. And yesterday I was looking at my year-end report for Huabei, which is like, I don't know, the credit card version on Alipay. And apparently I used Huabei to pay face-to-face about 70 times in the year 2020. Not as uh, not as many times as without the pandemic, but yeah, they know all of these. Where I went, when I 
you know, do my shopping and stuff. It's crazy. Right. So even if it's not about you specifically, it's the yeah. ag- it's the value of the aggregated data. So what do you think some of the implications are for the Alibaba group as a whole with this whole IPO potentially being sliced up, like you said? So Alibaba took a hit. The share price has fallen quite dramatically. I think it's the share price will continue to fall for a while. And then it's going to be a bargain that you should buy because it still mm. is a really successful e-commerce operation. And that's Unless the one caveat is that unless Jack Ma really pissed somebody off and then all bets are off. Right. Uh, and like and, that's the one thing. And because Ant Financial did not IPO or Ant Group didn't IPO as planned, so you know, that left a lot of money on the table, right, in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Do you think that companies that are going to IPO in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange will benefit from this delayed IPO? Yeah, yeah. No, I've seen that happen a lot. Well, anecdotally I've heard that, you know, people were allocating cash for the anti IPO, were still interested in getting exposure to other China plays. So I think We've seen some pretty solid IPOs since then, although they're recently one company that didn't do so well. But overall, I, I think that even though if you do some analysis, like, okay, the Chinese government intervening in such a crazy manner at the last minute should make you nervous about all China private enterprise. But it seems that, and you should be taking into account Every, anything you may invest in, you should be looking at anti-monopoly. You should look exposure to anti-monopoly now is your number one risk. But nonetheless, like you look at the performance of like uh, electric vehicle companies soaring through the sky, right? So I think there's some truth. What I've heard anecdotally is there's some truth to that. Like people who like literally like the mechanics of like they put money, you know, they transfer money from their bank account to their brokerage account. And they were like, well, it's here, you know, there's some, there's been a flood of China tech IPOs. So let's, you know, invest in it. Longer term, though, I think there might be some investor skepticism or investor nervousness about China tech, given the the vulnerability to a sometimes unpredictable regulatory regime. Do you think this entire fiasco offers a lesson to how Chinese tech companies should conduct themselves? Or which companies do you think might run into trouble with the state, similar to what yeah, what happened with Ant? If with you're Ant. big, you're in trouble. The thing that's really fascinating about Ant Group's IPO, like these guys have deep government relations teams, right? Yep. Jack Ma, like I can't imagine that he didn't know something was coming. I, you know, people that speech he gave, where he uh, criti- he gave this speech in public at a banker's forum, I believe, yep. some kind of financial forum where he criticized Chinese regulators for stifling innovation. I don't think that's what triggered crackdown. I think that speech was in reaction to the crackdown. Somebody as important as Jack Ma, I don't think somebody gives him a call like, "Hey, Gump, like my buddy, listen, the last Politburo meeting, not so good for you." You know what I mean? Like these, like he spends his time meeting these officials at all levels and like at every whatever, right? Like there's Jack Ma at the, the Shanghai mayor or the whatever, the, the party secretary, right? They know what's going on, right? To some extent, they must have known what was coming. If they, as and truly like I, people who used to work there and they describe like that, for example, their PR machines are so powerful, right? And able to influence and, and control media within China. If this company that's so powerful wasn't able to head off this disaster, what does that say for anybody else? Right. Like, I mean, you know, in the US, it's too big to fail. I think it's it's too big. You're going to, you know, I'm not going to say too big, you're going to fail, but just there's just too big, period. Companies that look like national infrastructure need to start worrying. I have always felt that like, I was actually just thinking about, so Tencent, WeChat is national infrastructure. It's like there's China Mobile and then there's WeChat. That's right. right? If you want to talk to somebody, you talk to them on WeChat. This is national infrastructure. And that means it has a national security implication. Interestingly, WeChat itself isn't really monetized. We've written about it as more of like a commercial concern and that they've like, oh, they don't want to pollute the user experience. But now I'm beginning to wonder if it's a political decision. Like they can't be seen making money off of national infrastructure, right? That makes sense. If you make too much money, like, but so how, if the government's looking at it, what do you do with WeChat? Well, then they can say like, we don't make any money from it. Maybe that's, that's a defense is like, look, it's just, it's just a service we offer for free. And we make some money off the of video games and we definitely don't have an monopoly in video games because look at all like there's netty there's not, not uh yeah netties and netties that's right yeah and and you know new studios coming up every day and 
you know, we don't have a monopoly on making a blockbuster, right? That's just a, a, any any house can come up with a great game. And, you know, we're just here to like, maybe that's Tencent has a, a more defensible position. But even, you know, the neighborhood group buying companies are like being looked at for undercutting the prices of the, of the wet markets, the fresh markets that they're competing mm-hmm. with. Everybody has to look very closely at their vulnerability. And then the thing is, anti-monopoly in China has a different angle, right? It's, it, it is about like fostering competition, but it's also about protecting social stability. So I think Pinduoduo is vulnerable. I think JD to some extent is vulnerable. I think Tencent, as we just discussed, I think if you're smaller, you're, you're fine, right? You just can't be big. Being big is becoming risky. Well, that sums it up pretty well. If you're big, then you better start worrying at least a little bit. And of course, we can't not talk about the biggest event that happened in 2020, which was or which is the COVID-19 pandemic. Which tech companies in China do you think are the major beneficiaries of the COVID-19 pandemic? E-commerce. E-commerce won, right? So Ali, JD, Pinduoduo, Tencent actually did quite well. I mean, tech in general did great because people were just buying everything online, watching videos online and doing everything online. ByteDance also did quite well. I'm trying to think of this as a specific loser. I think Ali overall did did really well. You know, they actually had some good PR and how they handled things initially, Ali, you know, with, with um, distributing masks and kind of like marshalling its logistics network for the for the distribution of protective gear. You know, they became a lifeline, like Homa became a lifeline for people, right? That's right. They actually had a lot of good, a lot of uh, public goodwill and how they handled it. And I think what changed, working for remotely didn't take off. I mean, everybody worked remotely in, in China as the way they did it everywhere else, but I don't think it's going to change work habits the same way as it did in the U.S. Nope. Because I think there's... Everyone's you know, back now into the office. Yeah, already. yeah. And I don't think they particularly enjoyed spending all that time in, in their apartments. <laughs> right? It's one thing to work from home if you got a backyard. It's another thing to work from home if you're in like a you know, the 30th floor of your of Xiaochu and, you know, and actually you're living with grandma and <laughs> like, damn, I can't spend another moment with my in-laws. And Or if you are from like a fourth or fifth year to city, you know, but you most of the time work in a first year city, right? Like you can't just stay in the countryside forever. Right. That's a really good point is that the dynamics of like, you know, what it means to, to go to work. Uh, sometimes it's not, it's not a commute. It's like a, a migration. <laughs> That's right. Um, you you mentioned earlier how, you know, we all know that China has managed the pandemic much better than the US. So what do you think are some of the implications to the Chinese economy from now, especially with the various uh, successful vaccines, um, like the Pfizer vaccine being approved? Yes, China managed after the, the virus better in some parts because it can do things that the U.S. can't. We won't talk about the beginning of the virus because that's that's a political issue. Implication. So yeah, the Chinese economy has recovered faster. Its exports are booming. Now the question is, what happens when, when everybody gets the vaccine? Other economies return to normal. Will China maintain, you know, some people say that this has shifted the balance of power in favor of China and that its, its economy is on track to surpass the U.S. at a much earlier date. I don't know. I read that report, too, that China will overtake uh, the U.S. economy to be the world's biggest by 2028. I mean, you know, you got a billion people, right? Like they're <laughs> buying stuff, right? Yes, it makes sense. It should be a large economy. It has a ton of people who are getting rich. But the U.S. has jacked up of a weird place as it is. It's very resilient and does have a lot of really driven entrepreneurs. And so I think once the U.S. reopens, will it come roaring back? What will happen when it comes back? What's interesting as well is that the innovative vaccine came from the West, not from China, right? The RNA-based vaccine, which is sort of the step change in how vaccines operate, didn't come from China, where they're obviously brainiacs and world's leading scientists, but it was the vaccines being developed in China are using a more traditional form of basically, I think you, you sort of take a weaker, try to create a weaker version of, of the vaccine as opposed to like trying to use the RNA versus the DNA of the vaccine. So even as the virus showed the profound weakness in, in the Western system, it also ended up showing 
a certain strength and resilience of it, right? In that some of the developers are like, is a classic story, right? German couple who are Turkish immigrants, I believe. So like, that's like, oh, you can't, you can't get a more like classic story of like, look, they're immigrants. Every side will find the lesson they want. It's kind of like when libertarians in America were like, see Sweden, they didn't do any um, mask wearing or uh, lockdown and, and they're fine. Like, yeah, Sweden also has nationalized healthcare. So if you get sick, everything's taken care of. Like, what will happen though, for sure, is that China comes out of this thinking, like, feeling its oats, like, look at us. We survived the financial crisis in 97. We sailed through the global meltdown of 2008. We are rock stars. We are mega genius economists, right? And COVID-19, right? Look at us, right? And so, I mean, if you're sitting in Jungnan High, you're like, bonus. You know what I mean? Like next time you meet somebody from the US, you're going to be like, tell me again, how many died? I can assure you that is exactly how most people feel about the entire situation in China, especially young people as well, feeling very proud right. of I mean, their like, government. You know, but remember the beginning when that poor doctor was posting, like he was gasping for breath. What's his name? Li, Li Wenliang. Yeah. You know, they could have gone really bad for China. I remember I've never seen anything like it when like Same. my entire WeChat moment was just like anger, anger, this profound anger. And it's been totally that narrative partly because of very skillful manipulation, but also because like at the end of the day, like I go out and wear a mask here in Hong Kong. You in, in China are like having parties rubbing up on each other in public. You know, these are images that like Americans are like, wait, wait, they're in public without masks and they're touching strangers. Oh my God, what is that like? You know? That's right. So now, will that lead to hubris and, and like a misstep? Because this virus, by the way, is a nasty critter. It's nasty, right? Beijing is back under some severe lockdown, right? This yeah. thing. Yeah, like 19, like mid-risky regions or something now in China. Lockdowns are coming back on. Yeah, so don't get, you know, you got to be careful with this, this critter. You can't get cocky. And like, let's nope. say... I mean, heaven forbid that the vaccines don't work or that there's a, a screw up in like the distribution or like somewhere along the line, there's like, you know, some kind of contamination, right? These are things that happen in China, right? Like where somebody's like, oh, we'll cut a corner, right? Like this is the country that like poisoned infant formula, right? Like, oh, let's not bring that back up. Yeah, that's um, so embarrassing. It's so sad. It, it, but it was a systemic problem, right? That's it was right. the way that incentives were built. It was like people lower down in the chain who were like, uh, you know, I need to make a buck and ignoring the consequences. And so my one, I mean, and there's been other issues with, with Chinese medicine that's sold on the global markets where like somebody's trying to cut a corner. You know, somebody asked me, would you take a Chinese vaccine? And I thought, you know what? I think there's going to be so much scrutiny on the Chinese vaccines from the Chinese government, right? Because they have a lot writing on this a lot right. they cannot have people in brazil dropping dead from chinese vaccines right no you know what i mean <laughs> I, I shouldn't be laughing this hard <laughs> but i totally understand that's right it's yeah true. so i i think but yeah the way they turn this narrative around and so china's going to feel awfully cocky about everything and i i wonder if that will translate into how so it's weird so the chinese government's feeling very very cocky but the chinese companies are feeling like they've just been beaten up wherever they go so it's uh, i don't know how that plays out we still need to cover SoftBank and its current strategy to go private. Yeah, huh. SoftBank, I, I'm going to have less to say about. I think Masayoshi-san has been talking a lot about how the company isn't as valuable as the investments. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of their value is tied up in Alibaba. So I'll just buy Alibaba. Why would I buy SoftBank, right? If it's the sum of your parts. And then the other question is like, so SoftBank's done really, really well. Like the Vision Fund, I thought was going to be disaster. The fact that they can't raise a Vision Fund too kind of shows that it's sort of been a mixed result. And they've gone up, you know, SoftBank has done very well because the value, because the stock markets have gone up, not because their products have been killing it. So if I want to, like, that's a hedge fund or that's an investment bank. So then I won't buy SoftBank, I'll buy Goldman Sachs, right? I'll buy the guys who I know have a track record of investing and running money, right? I think SoftBank is going, they're kind of taking maybe the Warren Buffett approach where you have like one thing that makes money, like in, in Warren Buffett, it was the insurance industry that, you know, generates stream of money that you can then use to invest in other things. I'm still uncomfortable. And then the take private, like I get why they're doing it. I still feel, you know, don't bet against Masayoshi San because he's, he bounces back no matter what, right? But for investors, if the take private is at a good price, then they'll agree to it, right? And then great, everybody walks away happy. I do think that ultimately though, the strategy 
strategy of like the hundred billion dollar investments in tech didn't really work out. Do you think that their you know a more enormous influence on the tech industry kind of waned off after WeWork? And where do you think they will spend the rest of the money that they have? Oh, they spent it all already. They spent oh. it down. Yeah, they spent it down. They managed to blow it. I mean, not blow it, right? So the surge in the valuation of tech companies has really helped their portfolio, and they can mark it up. But even then, they've had to mark down a lot. They spent a ton of money. I think they basically, I believe, they spent it all down. And because now there's some of the newer investments are from Vision Fund Two, but Vision Fund Two only has a couple billion from SoftBank itself. They have, they don't have other investors on that second fund. And so, you think I'm, they will get any more to make it a real? I mean. No, I don't think the thesis hasn't worked out. Like it's not just about throwing money at a problem, right? Sometimes if you give too much money to a company, especially a young tech startup, they make mistakes because it's like, well, we got money, and so let's buy the nail spa because we'll figure out how to monetize, or we, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, we work with such a mess. So many of their other high-profile investments haven't haven't really worked out. I don't think they'll be able to do a second fund. That doesn't mean that SoftBank will continue to be a major player, but no one really gets as excited about them. I think you've seen the return of, of Silicon Valley. Like people are talking about, like, wow, Sequoia's returns were fantastic. Like, who are the winners? People were talking about in like DoorDash, the recent US IPOs. It's interesting. Like SoftBank had some hits in there. But really, the winners were Silicon Valley VC firms. I see that DoorDash's IPO gave them about a 10 billion gain that uh, helped write off WeWork's investment. <laughs> if they do go private, do you think they potentially could, you know, maneuver a comeback after um, being private? I mean, you know, Masa used to be the richest man. Then he became practically broke in the first dot-com bubble. He's gone back. You know, the WeWork debacle was erased by the surge in their investments on the past year. But that's the thing is like making money in tech this year was kind of like, well, yeah, because like, I mean, this doesn't show me that you're a genius. It shows me that you were in tech in a year when like the spigots were open, interest rates were zero, nothing else was worth investing in. So you like, okay, yeah, I mean, if I had money, I would have made, you know, if I could buy Apple and Amazon, I'd be doing well too, right? I mean, I'm sure there's more to it and I'm being a little simplistic, but I don't know. It didn't show like, oh my God, he's a genius and how they maneuvered. In fact, some of the more complicated trades they made became problematic. They were doing some sort of financial engineering that they ran into trouble with. It seemed to be just like, you know, and there was the Wall Street Journal was reporting about how a lot of the trading was being run directly by Masayoshi Sun. Well, I'm like, okay, like if you're spending your day as a day trader, you're not spending your day as the CEO of a tech conglomerate, right? Like that to me felt like you're losing focus on what, when I buy SoftBank stock, I wanted to do tech, not to do investing, right? I talked earlier about like, well, if I, if you, if you show me like, look, we're such smart investors, like, well, I'll, then I'll buy, you know, BlackRock or Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. But yeah, then again, like the guy reinvents himself and I'm sure he'll come up with the next act and I'm very curious to see what it'll be. I do hope a 2021 is also going to be making a comeback for everyone, like how he made a comeback for himself. So now the most exciting part. What are some of your predictions for 2021? And then we can grade your you know, paper in a year from now. Well, we kind of salted them throughout this interview. So I think, you know, Ant Group, I'm going to make deliberately uh, provocative things. So part of Ant Group will be effectively nationalized through a merger with a state-owned bank. I think TikTok will go through with, or ByteDance will go through with some kind of partnership with Qualcomm and Walmart, and that partnership will go back into India. I predict that Alibaba will have shrinking market share in China as a host of newcomers on the uh, online grocery and other forms of e-commerce, including ByteDance start nipping at its heels and start chipping away at its uh, dominance. I predict that US-China relations will continue to be tense, but it'll go from, as I said, this sort of TV show cliffhanger to much more predictable and moderated policy, but still will be tense. I predict that once the vaccine is more universal, you will see the US economy roar back at a surprisingly strong level, probably stronger than before, and that it will surprise the Chinese. And I think that the IPO market will actually continue to stay strong, not because of more qualitative easing, but because of the rebounding global economy. And I predict that one of the Chinese EV companies that is doing well will probably vanish. We're going to see another accounting scandal. My guess is the most likely 
targets for an accounting scandal would be without being libelous. Yeah, let's just be more broader. We're going to see another big accounting scandal come up. What about for SoftBank? Any predictions? They'll probably, you know, I think the privatization won't happen. It's a lot of money. And then again, Japanese banks don't have much else to do with their cash, right? That's one of the secret, secret weapons that SoftBank had is that it has these domestic banks that are negative interest rates, right? So I can either like make no money from deposits or I can lend it to SoftBank. And as crazy as he is, like he, he hit some home runs. So maybe a consortium of Japanese banks would offer the take private, but I think they'll prefer to stay public and benefit from, because staying, staying public when tech's valuations are going up gives them more power to buy other things or to do, you know, there's no reason for them to go private at a high price. That's a solid list of predictions that I can't wait to revisit in in a year from now. And before I let you go, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Oh gosh, my life has been somewhat narrow these days, but I've been listening to a lot of pop music. So pop music is good. (laughs) I got to say, so yeah, Sound Opinions is where I go to for for music critics. I do like Ray Ma's podcast, which I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, Tech Buzz China. I found that she does really good work and uh, I've enjoyed a couple them. Our last episode was with Rayma on Ant Financial. Oh, great. On, great. on yeah. Ant Group. That's right. Yeah, she's sharp. She's very sharp. I met her in one of my earliest reporting trips on tech, keeping tabs on sense. And she's always, because she's also very bicultural and, bi- and really bilingual, just like yourself. So it's, and it's rare to have bicultural, bilingual, and like tech fluent and really understands business models. And so she can see things very clearly. Um, I think she's a, a, a rare combination. So I always, I really enjoyed uh, her work. And other than that, the information, yeah, of course, of course, you should subscribe to the information we've done. We've had a pretty good year. I got to say our, our uh, Asia coverage and the US, we, we broke the Quibi collapse. And I believe we just did a podcast with Pharrell because he's got a VC fund. Oh, that's so cool. I want to I wanna listen to that. <laughs> Regardless, all of our podcasts are fascinating. And we did something really interesting. It was fun. We did a TI-50, which was like a list of 50 top startups above, you know, below a certain size and a certain vintage. And that was fun. In China, we stumbled into a trend, which was a lot of enterprise software and robotics and AI. So that was a neat thing to show up in that. But that, th- those are my uh, recommendations. How can our audience find you? I am smoke signals, facts, snail mail, theinformation.com. My email is shy, S-H-A-I, at theinformation.com. I'm on Twitter with the embarrassing handle at Beijing Scribe. If you want to say some private, ping me on Twitter. And then I got Signal. I'm on Signal and Telegram. I'm on WeChat. I don't remember my particular, I think it's shy underscore Oster on WeChat. Reach out any way you can. I'm on LinkedIn. You can just shy Oster on LinkedIn. You'll find me. I'm, I'm on Facebook. Everywhere. I'm out there. That's right. And so are we. You can find Analyze Asia on all podcasting platforms. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. That is at Analyze Asia, Analyze with an S. Now, thank you so much, Chai, for doing another great year end episode with us. Um, I know our listeners can't see me throughout the entire episode, but I was like nodding my head and just grinning at, you know, all the wonderful things that you were saying. I'm like, yes, yes, agreeing to everything, um, but without, you know, wanting to say that all the time. So again, thank you. And it's always a pleasure, you know, talking to you and hearing your perspective, your take on, on things China and uh, tech. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You know, our job is normally to ask other people what they think. And then when we're unleashed to, to say what we think, it can go a little haywire. <laughs> I a love lot it. Of pent up opinions. <laughs> Thank you so much. Here's to a great 2021. See you in the next year. Thank you. Vaccine in hand.